0: Welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Tiffany C. Lee, a visiting clinical assistant professor at Boston University School of Law and a fellow at the Yale Information Society Project. We will discuss her article, Privacy in Pandemic, Law, Technology, and Public Health in the COVID-19 Crisis. So welcome to the show, Tiffany.
1: Thanks for having me on.
0: Great, yeah, no, it's really it's my pleasure. I've been I've been looking forward to the opportunity to interview you for quite some time, as as you know, and uh, it was really fun and timely reading this article. Um, but I, I wonder if you could start by talking about why you think the current COVID nineteen pandemic is an important frame for thinking about the questions of privacy law that you pose in this article?
1: Sure. So obviously the pandemic has affected all of us. I mean, right now we have over 180,000 Americans who have died from the pandemic. We have millions more infected around the world. This is something that will definitely change the course of not only privacy law, but just law in general and society in general. So I was moved to write this article because I've been working on technology and privacy uh, my entire legal career, even when I was a practicing attorney. And when all of this started happening, I saw immediately the many privacy impacts first. It's that old saying, you know, if you only have a hammer, everything looks like a nail, right? So for me, everything that started happening had a privacy impact. The COVID mass testing, for example, the um, antibody testing, contact tracing, Things like moving schools to Zoom, uh, things like using remote software for um, employment in the workplace. All of that to me looked like a privacy problem. And the thing was, these were the privacy problems that I had been working on and everyone else had been working on for years and years, but suddenly brought into this great new scale, new scale and new speed of privacy problems and incursions, something we hadn't necessarily seen before until now so I thought it was important to consider privacy and pandemic, not just because there is still time, I believe, to protect our privacy rights in times of public health crisis, but also as sort of a historical record, because I think this will not be the last privacy-related health crisis we see. It certainly won't be the last crisis generally. So as a historical record, I think it's important to look at what privacy means right now and some of the ways we might be able to fix some of the problems we're already seeing.
0: Well, maybe you could start by talking a little bit about testing and tracking, because I think that's on a lot of people's minds as we're thinking about trying to, they still say flatten the curve or whatever on the spread of the disease and prevent people from getting sick and dying. Um, And, you know, as testing is becoming more broadly available in different forms, what kind of specific privacy issues do you see Uh, both in relation to the testing itself and maybe the way that the testing is or may be.
1: There are a number of issues with COVID testing. And one of the greatest findings that um, I developed from this paper is just simply the concept that public health and privacy have to go hand in hand. You cannot use public health as a scapegoat for privacy violations. It just doesn't work. For example, one thing we found is that we do need mass testing. We need to have testing at a much higher scale than we have right now in order to track, uh, monitor, and prevent the spread of this disease. We're not seeing that. We're also not seeing things like adoption of these apps um, for contact tracing. that are being developed by Google and Apple and others. And a lot of what we're seeing here is that people may not be interested in using digital contact tracing apps, for example, because there isn't privacy protection. People don't trust apps on their phone right now. So they're not necessarily going to download an app for COVID tracking. People don't necessarily trust the government in terms of privacy. So they may not want to include their health information in a government database. I think privacy is really important when discussing uh, COVID testing, contact tracing, and so on, not just because there are privacy harms, but there could be real benefits of public health if we fix the privacy issues first.
0: Are there privacy issues specific to different kinds of testing and specifically when it comes to testing, what kinds of privacy concerns maybe have you already seen people expressing or do you anticipate might arise if we don't do something to head them off before they develop?
1: Yeah, that I think is really important to remember in terms of privacy and testing uh, is that a lot of this information is health information. It's information related to our own health, whether that's the actual COVID-19 results, um, or other information like the symptoms you may or may not have. Additionally, we have potentially genetic information that could come through as part of testing or as part of the health apparatus around testing. There are a lot of problems that I see here. And first, simply that we don't know what data is being collected necessarily. When we go to get a COVID-19 test, we should, as users, as consumers, as citizens, we should know where the data is going and what's happening with the data. And I don't necessarily see that happening here. And that's partially a function of our laws not really being sufficient to protect health privacy and certainly not genetic privacy. HIPAA, for example, is the one that everyone is talking about today. Um, As we've seen in the news over and over again, But HIPAA doesn't really protect that much. It protects certain kinds of health information as transmitted from or to specific cover entities under the law. It doesn't necessarily protect much outside of that. It doesn't necessarily include, for example, private entities um, or these sort of public-private partnerships that we're seeing right now in terms of certain contact tracing centers or testing centers.
0: Do you think consumers are aware of that or how broadly do you think people have knowledge, like general consumers have knowledge about the scope of privacy protection under HIPAA? And as as I understand it, at least some related laws that touch on medical related privacy data concerns. Do people do you think people understand how that works or are they a little confused in some cases? And to what extent are companies potentially taking advantage of that or might have the ability to take advantage of people's confusion?
1: There is an information disparity here. I think the average person who is not a lawyer or law professor has very little way to understand what HIPAA is or does. Um, I think already most of us will go to the doctor's office um, or the clinic or testing center will be presented with a disclaimer, a waiver of some sort that will say things about privacy that will mention HIPAA, but I highly doubt that most people read that before signing. Uh, it's definitely a little bit coercive if you think about it, if you predicate life-saving health services based on uh, understanding the terms of a contract, um, but that's a contract law issue. I think outside of that though, generally people don't know what HIPAA is or does people do assume that there is a health privacy law because we get those waivers and they've heard of HIPAA. And it's possible that people assume that their health privacy is fully protected because the law exists. And that simply isn't true. Um, And that's partially on us um, as legal educators and as lawyers and advocates um, and getting that message through to people so they understand where their data is going and how their data is being protected. But it's also partially on legislators to create better laws
0: how has HIPAA protection and other related protections of of patient data actually played out in the context of the pandemic? Had there been any changes to privacy law uh, in kind of... In thinking about what the kind of medical public health needs are in relation to the COVID-19 crisis, like what's sort of the the state of play on the ground when it comes to patient privacy?
1: Relaxations of HIPAA regulations, given the pandemic conditions. Uh, For example, there have been a number of HHS guidances that have been put out to allow for things like um, greater use of telehealth and telemedicine. I think that's positive. I think it's a positive mood to, move to allow for more of these remote uh, medical communication technologies, because it is hard right now to go to a doctor's office when there is an active pandemic. And it's helpful for access to medicine, for people to be able to have telehealth options if, for example, they live in rural areas without a large number of doctors in the area. So there has been some relaxation of HIPAA restrictions. Some of that has been helpful, but some of that is also a little problematic because it means that HIPAA itself and our health privacy laws don't really work in the context of a health emergency. So I would think about this as an opportunity that maybe with the pandemic, we can craft better laws that can protect us in this pandemic and in whatever next health public crisis we see.
0: Well, are there particular changes or modifications that you think would be especially beneficial or uh, especially kind of positive in relation to both kind of advancing public health but also protecting privacy at the same time? I mean, you've talked a little bit about telehealth are there other interventions that either maybe people have been contemplating but haven't um, haven't implemented, or that have kind of emerged in the course of the pandemic as things we should have been thinking about but weren't?
1: Sure. So in the paper I talk about a few different public health responses, um, mass testing, contact tracing, uh, things like telehealth and telemedicine. But there are also other technologies that have been used in healthcare that have come to light uh, during the pandemic. Not necessarily newly created for the pandemic, but used at a larger scale than before. For example, we're seeing healthcare robots being utilized. Um, This can be actually very helpful. For example, right now, if a nurse wants to enter a patient's room, uh, the nurse has to fully don PPE and protective gear, um, enter the patient's room, the uh, COVID patient's room, And that is a process that may take a number of minutes. And it may simply be to, for example, bring a cup of water in. Um, And it's something that takes a lot of time when hospital resources are already stretched very thin. Healthcare robots then can do things like this uh, much more easily. You can, for example, just have a healthcare robot, some of these exist, uh, which include uh, a little tray on which you put food or drink. And that robot can go. Um, into different rooms without necessarily needing the amount of time it might take for a human nurse or attendant to completely change into protective gear and then change out of protective gear. So healthcare robots are one thing that's being used. Another thing that I think is really interesting and really potentially problematic is the use of medical AI. So artificial intelligence systems used in medicine There are a few that we've seen develop um, at in different places for COVID response. And one that I think is really particularly interesting is this idea of an AI-based medical triage. So there have been systems created to, for example, uh, decide which of three patients who come into the ER should be given one ventilator, if only one exists. And that kind of triage was traditionally done by, you know, physicians or healthcare professionals, and now can be done um, or assisted by these medical AI systems. So a lot of potential new changes in terms of technology that can be done. These t- technologies are necessarily new, but we haven't seen them deployed as regularly as we m- may have been seeing now uh, with the pandemic. Are there
0: particular concerns that might be associated with automated or artificially intel- artificial intelligence-driven uh, decision-making triage processes? I mean, in the paper, you suggest there might be bias-related issues. Where would those come from? And are there reasons to be concerned about bias in human decision-making as well?
1: This is a really fraught question. There are definitely a lot of places where AI systems can show bias. Um, and a number of people have written a lot of great scholarship about this. Uh, there can, for example, simply be bias in the data that is used um, to train, for example, a machine learning system. Um, there can be bias in the design of the system. Um, you can, for if we go back to my example of a medical triage a system that's designed to determine who should get a ventilator at a hospital. There could be bias in the data on which patients in the past have successfully um, been able to survive different illnesses when given a ventilator. Now it's possible that um, the patients who in the past had better health outcomes were those who were already healthier to begin with, um, healthier by different standards, of course. And this could, for example, mean that an AI system that attempts to triage the use or the affordance of ventilators to different patients could privilege patients who, for example, are not disabled, patients who are not pregnant, um, patients who are not uh, people of color, um, who have historically often um, suffered health disparities and worse health outcomes, Um, Particularly, I would say um, there have been a lot of studies on um, disparate health outcomes for the black population. So this AI system, if using all this past data, could create predictions that would suggest that you should always, for example, privilege the um, non-disabled white male patient over the disabled black female patient. And I'm not sure if that's something we're comfortable with. I'm not sure if we're comfortable with an AI system that tells us um, that effectively sort of systematizes racial, gender, um, income, and socioeconomic bias in this way.
0: Are there things that you think that the public health system particularly ought to keep in mind? if and when any of these artificial intelligence-based decision-making systems are utilized in this context in order to mitigate or avoid that kind of of bias problem. Um, you know, and sort of how, how would you make that work? I mean, it seems like there's also problems with 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 people being biased too. And, and I wonder like how you sort of dodge both of those problems at the same time?
1: Really difficult. Um, The disparate health outcomes I mentioned before, where people from different groups, different genders, different races, sometimes suffer disproportionately negative outcomes in healthcare. That problem is a problem that happened before AI really was used in healthcare, right? That was a problem that is the result potentially of healthcare worker bias um, or of systemic societal issues. For example, people um, in certain zip codes um, that lack um, access to, you know, cheap or fresh grocery stores will often have worse health outcomes because they have a harder time finding healthier foods to eat or buy. That's not an issue that um, is related to AI, um, or at least not related to medical triage AI. That's not even an issue related to human bias. That's just a systemic problem we have. So any public health responses have to really think of all of these issues, and it's something that I think we do think of in public health. We try to deal with these systemic issues because we know that they're part and parcel of health issues. We also try to deal with human bias. I've read, an, uh, at least, um, I've read some of the literature on this, that there have been many attempts from people within the health and medicine fields to try to correct bias from physicians and from healthcare workers or at least to bring attention to it. To try to train, for example, the next generation of medical students to understand that these biases exist. On the tech side, there are a number of things we can do. We could, for example, try to regulate the use of these AI technologies. Um, We can try to enforce transparency so people know when these algorithmic decision-making systems are being used in their healthcare. Um, We can try to add transparency measures that allow people to understand how these systems are being designed and how they're being deployed and what you can do about it. So, for example, if you believe a system is unfair or unbiased, should you have a right to stop its use in your healthcare? That's a question that I don't really have an answer to right now, but it's something that we can think about. Things like that, I think, are important. There's a lot that can be done, but these are really big, weighty issues.
0: Well, you talk about this human automation difference in the context of contact tracing as well. I wonder if you could reflect a little bit on the sort of relative advantages and disadvantages of taking different approaches to contact tracing, specifically, and sort of whether there are privacy concerns specific to to either one of those different. Approaches to contact tracing that we ought to be sort of thinking about from a privacy policy perspective?
1: So, in the paper, I divided the contact tracing issue into two separate categories. First is the human or manual contact tracing, um, which is pretty traditional and it's been done for other diseases in the past. Essentially, what happens is that um, you test positive or you say that you're positive for having COVID. Um, And a human will then call you or meet with you in person, um, and you will talk to that human and you will just go over who you may have been in contact with within the time frame that you may have been contagious. And during this conversation, the contact tracer will take down different details of these people, contact information, and so on. And afterwards, the contact tracer will then contact each of those people in turn and tell them that it may be time for them to also test to see if they're COVID positive or at least to quarantine until a certain amount of time has passed. So that's the human contact tracing method. The digital contact tracing method occurs in a few different ways, but mostly through the use of an app. And the idea is that if you have an app that's open and tracking um, either, so it can track one of two things. A digital contact tracing app can track location. The app could track everyone's location over a certain amount of time, and then if someone says that they've tested positive, the app can then match everyone who has been in a similar location as that person during that amount of time, and then contact those people to also get tested or quarantined. Alternatively, a digital contact tracing app could use Bluetooth technology. So instead of tracking your location, it could simply track who you were near at a certain amount of time. So instead of saying that, you know, Brian was in Chicago today, uh, the app could then say that Brian was um, within a block of where Tiffany was, for example. A block is too far for a lot of this tech, but that's just an example of the proximity tracking versus location tracking. So those are the three different types of contact tracing. Um, And definitely there are different problems with digital tracing, Bluetooth or location-based, and with human tracing as well
0: maybe you could talk a little bit about what those problems are and how you think they might best be be mitigated. Should we be thinking about sort of optimizing one approach or using a combination of approaches? I mean, based on your research, what do you think the kind of best practices in this area would be to mitigate some of the problems that you're identifying?
1: So one problem that unites digital and human contact tracing is simply the vast collection of data. And that includes the health data um, as well as contact information. Uh, So a lot of the protections we see here or that we could see here could involve things like making sure that data collected as part of contact tracing, regardless of what type of contact tracing it is, um, is limited to the use only for contact tracing. I would want a protection, a regulation, or at least a corporate privacy policy that states that if I give my, my data to Google's contact tracing app, that I will then not have that data be used against me or sold to a vendor outside the contact tracing process. And of course, right now, Google doesn't really have a contact tracing app, um, but I think any corporate app or any even public app should have that kind of protection. And it should be protection we expect from human contact tracing, too.
0: Does privacy law currently provide anything like that kind of protection? And if not, what do you think ought to be done in order to ensure that that kind of data protection is obligatory on whoever happens to be gathering it, whether it's private businesses or or the government?
1: So we do see this idea of purpose limitation um, or of use limitation for data. We see this idea in a few different privacy laws. Uh, most notably, within HIPAA, there is some limitation for the types of use, uses that occur for the data that's collected. Um, and generally, if we were to have one day a comprehensive privacy law, we would likely see something similar to that. A general note that um, you should tell users or consumers why you're collecting data and limit your use of that data to the purposes that you specify. Now the issue though is that very often what you'll see at least in the corporate sector is that companies will just see in their privacy policy extremely broad uses. I'm sure you've seen this as well uh, where companies will say things like we will use your data to provide you services. Um, as well as for other legitimate purposes or legitimate business purposes. That could be almost anything. Um, and that's a little problematic, um, not just for contact tracing, but for data in general.
0: Well, in the paper, you also talk not just about the collection and use of data directly related to COVID-19, but also the collection and use of genetic data, both in a kind of COVID context context, and more broadly. Do you think there are issues specific to genetic data? And how might we work that kind of data into the way that we think more broadly about privacy protection uh, as a policy matter?
1: I do think there are specific issues with genetic data. And I worry about genetic privacy because when it comes down to it, the information about our DNA Is so intrinsic to us that it almost is us. Now that's that's a lot. But from what I what I mean from that is that there is sort of this, I think, inherent difference to most of us between the protection of your DNA data versus the protection of your credit card number. And I don't think that both of those types of information require the same type of protection. So we see a little bit of that, right? We have some special health privacy protections. We have a few laws, for example, on genetic information, non-discrimination, but I don't think we have enough. Uh, We don't have, for example, laws that really protect your DNA privacy now that there are so many consumer DNA testing kits out there. So in a COVID context or otherwise, we now have the proliferation of testing kits, like 23andMe and Ancestry.com, that allow for people to send their DNA uh, sample to one of these corporate databases, uh, for which, after which, the corporate corporation can do pretty much anything they want with it. The privacy policies are really pretty broad, um, and we've already seen, for example, some use of this data, access of this data from for law enforcement, and that can have good or bad benef- bad consequences. It could be beneficial for public safety if we solve crimes based on DNA database data. But it could also have potential negative consequences as well. And this is something that we haven't seen too much yet, and we start getting into sci-fi territory a little bit. Um, But I definitely think in the future, we will want more privacy protections for genetic data.
0: Well, Tiffany, you said one thing in your paper that I thought was was really interesting and provocative, which was that privacy is essential to to public health. And I had never thought of it quite that way before. I wonder if you could expand a little bit on why you think that's the case and exactly how privacy is so essential to, to public health.
1: I think there's often a false trade-off, right? People say things like, Privacy is important, but public health right now is so much more important. So we have to give up a little privacy to get a little public health in return. And this is something we saw in the past with national security or counterterrorism The same argument that we have to give up a little bit of privacy for just a little bit more safety. But similarly, I don't think you can have public health without privacy, just like you can't really have national security without privacy either. For public health, this means a few things. For example, digital contact tracing apps were a really interesting idea. And it's not something we necessarily saw before this pandemic. People launched these ideas and these apps with great fanfare. Everybody was super excited. Google, Apple have a new API. Um, Every country has its own app. It's fantastic. What we've seen now, though, and now that months have passed since the first Major international outbreak of the pandemic is that these apps are not really being used in many nations. They're not being used, I think, because of a privacy problem. People don't trust the apps. People don't trust that Google or Apple or whoever's running the app will use their DNA and store it safely and not use it against them. People don't necessarily trust the government to have their data. If you have that lack of User, um, consumer, or resident trust, people will not participate in public health initiatives. And this is something that's a little bit larger when you take a step back and think about general faith in institutions. We have a crisis right now where people don't trust our institutions. Many people in the United States do not trust, for example, the CDC, they don't trust science in general. Um, or the education establishment, or the news. And this lack of trust partially is causing a lot of issues we have with public health. Similarly, because we've lost this expectation of privacy from corporations and from the government, we often are unable to fully trust in these public health initiatives. So if we really want public health initiatives to succeed, we need to restore consumer and user faith. We need to make it clear that if you participate in, for example, a contact tracing program, if you give your DNA sample to a new research initiative, we need to make it clear that your data won't then be used against you or else people won't participate and people won't trust the results of these public health responses.
0: Well, Tiffany, in in closing, in the paper, you note that our Current United States approach to consumer privacy protection is pretty fragmented and and partial insofar, especially that that it's waivable. And you suggest that, among other things, what we should be thinking about is a kind of more comprehensive, more um, kind of broad thinking approach to privacy protection and work you kind of looking at it more holistically um what do you think ideally the key features of a privacy policy regime would look like and are there models you would point to as ones we might think about as we proceed in kind of discussing what the future of privacy in the United States might look like
1: That's a great question. Basically, you're asking if I could write the comprehensive privacy law for the United States, what would it be? What would it look like? Um, And I do think, of course, many people would say that it should look something like the GDPR or maybe California's CCPA. There are certain provisions we can lift from that, definitely, Um, but I believe that even if we have a comprehensive national privacy law, there will still be some gaps. So we have to think of this on two levels. I think on a national level, some of the things that I mentioned in my paper um, include things that many of these laws don't really contemplate right now. For example, I think we do need to have a focus on digital inequities and on the disproportionate privacy impacts for different groups, especially marginalized populations privacy laws should reflect that and uh, and reflect those specific harms that some people uh, may suffer and protect against those harms. Outside of a national comprehensive privacy law, though, I think that regardless, we will have some sectoral privacy laws. And I know a few places where we need specific provisions that should be strengthened, um, either incorporated as part of a national law or simply strengthened as part of our sectoral, you know, sector by sector privacy regime. Specifically, I highlight a few. I highlight, of course, health privacy, health biometric and genetic data privacy as needing more protection. I also mention education privacy. And this might be because I'm a little biased because I work in education um, and many of us listening are currently either in law school or law school professors. But education privacy is something I think is extremely crucial. And with the pandemic, we've seen that our traditional laws, for example, like FERPA, don't really protect you in a remote learning environment. And they don't really protect you in a mixed public-private learning environment either. So we do need better protections for education privacy. Additionally, something I think is important is protecting against algorithmic harms and harms from data brokers. So the data brokers that buy data from Facebook or from Google or potentially from your contact tracing center and then repackage that data and sell it to other sources for whatever use, those data brokers, I think, are a great source of a lot of privacy problems. And to date, we don't really have laws that protect us against them. So that's a huge issue that I think we need to protect uh, protect consumers from, protect all users from. And that's something that we can do in a comprehensive privacy law or in a sector-specific law as well.
0: Well, Tiffany, thanks so much for coming on the show to share this excellent and very timely paper. I know I learned a lot about our uh the structure of our privacy regime and how it's reacted to the COVID-19 crisis and uh I really appreciate you coming on to talk about it and and hopefully it'll be available for listeners to check out the actual paper soon.
1: Great. Thanks, Brian.